powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show! Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy, guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Welcome everyone, we are back again. I'm Derek Duvall and this is episode 15 of the Derek Duvall Show. Get ready to test your mic. That's right. The brand spanking new film Mortal Kombat is out in theaters and on HBO Max. I hope you get to see it. I am so old. I remember when the first game came out. And guess what, folks? I even remember the blood code. A-B-A-C-A-B-B. I hope you get to watch and enjoy. Reviews been a little mixed, but I mean, are we really expecting this to win an Academy Award? I mean, come on. Anyways, hope you all have had a productive two weeks. The the response from the Robert Hayes episode was immense, and I want to welcome all the new listeners who have subscribed. Trust me, I have been keeping track of that little count. Trust me. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I hope you enjoy, and I invite you to explore the back catalog. There's some absolutely phenomenal guests that have been on before, so check it out. You know, hey, you know, what have you lost if you don't like it, you know? So what have we got for episode 15? We have on the show today singer, actress, and activist Van Jewel Hinton. And also musician-producer Sean Rivera. They will be discussing Caged Bird songs inspired by the works of Dr. Maya Angelou. It is a great episode featuring two incredibly talented individuals. So let's not stand on ceremony. Let's just go ahead and just dive right on into it. Welcome to our show of smooth music, Van Jewel Hinton and Sean Rivera. Welcome to the show. How are the both of you? Fantastic. Excellent. Thank you very and much. You? I start my questions that reflects the trying times that we are living in. How has the COVID world been treating the both of you? Well, I guess I have to say it's treating me okay because I haven't gotten it. And it's kind of ignoring me. So I'm hoping that it continues to move away from me. <laughs> I don't want to have a relationship with it. <laughs> Sean? Well, I'm happy to have a little extra time for introspection and creative projects, but I miss sitting in person with Van Jewel. Usually we're together in person, kicking it right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you guys just keep in touch with Zoom or by phone? Yes, yes, and yes. (laughs) Yes, absolutely (laughs) right. Google Hangouts, Zoom, Skype, regular phone. Anything. Yeah. All right. Well, Van Jewel, I have been reading about your career. It is truly a reflection of almost a renaissance life um you've had your hands in almost everything and to me alone that is pretty much incredible so let's take it back to the start um from what i understand you grew up in foster care and you found yourself performing at an early age was it a natural fit right away or did it take a little bit of time to get you feel comfortable with it yeah i've been singing i was told i was singing since i was four and my foster mother was a opera singer and so we used to sing harmonies together, you know, when I was about five or six, and I would do it in schools. So um, that was my the beginning. And then my brother, who was my savior at that time, he saved me from so many catastrophes in my life living in the foster home because it was a really bad place to be. It wasn't a good home at all. And so my brother pretty much saved my life and my mind 
and uh, but he was a singer as well. So this is something that I've been doing all my life, and uh, it brings me great joy, and hopefully to other people as well. And so uh, that that was the beginning, and I'm doing it to till this day. So, with your foster mother being an opera singer, any inspirations to try and do the same thing? Um, you know, it just happened. Prior, before I even moved there, I was singing. Um, I was singing like Stormy Weather when I was living with my uh, cousins before we went into foster care. And so it's just been a part of who I who I am and who I've been all my life. So it's it's my release. It's my my the gift that I'm thankful that I have. And I really wanted to make a difference in other people's lives. That's why I started writing my own material. But I I just love it. It's um it's always been with me and always will be. I always say the two universal languages is mathematics and music. Uh, yes. I find that I find it to be very very true. Music sure. is emotional math. Sean, you too, you've had quite an education, Temple, University of the Arts. Did you always have a mind of being in the music business of some kind? Well, um, similar to Van, I had a troubling uh, childhood, and I was raised by my mother, who was and still is blind, and my father, who was a career criminal, God rest his soul. And I, I was fortunate enough to go to uh, Philadelphia's number one high school, uh, which at the time was and still is Central High School of Philadelphia, college preparatory. Um, and I turned down Ivy League scholarships to sing in a street corner group in Philadelphia, which eventually wound up uh, having the number one song in the country. So that's how I got into the industry <laughs> on a fluke, I guess you could say, that I had more faith in music and the industry than I did in uh, academia at the time. And I followed my heart uh, and it led me all the way to the top of the Billboard charts back in uh, 1996 and then a Grammy nomination in 1998 for Best R&B Vocal Performance Group or Duo. That's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. Benjo, I want to ask you something now, based based on what I've read. You performed at the historic Apollo Theater, am I correct? Yes. Probably, <laughs> probably in my opinion, in the top five, probably much the most cherished concert venues maybe in the world. Well, it's not probably what you think, uh, <laughs> because um, I was I was about 16, and I was in a group we called ourselves the, the Temptation Sensations. And um, so we we were about 16 and her my friend's parents, there were two sisters and myself, uh, we drove to New York. I was living in Connecticut where I, where I grew up. And so we went to audition for one of the, um, it was a talent night. And so if you win, then you move on and on and on. So we went there just for the audition and we were in our, our school clothes. You know, I had this mohair like suit on and boots and you know, just we were just looking casual. And so we did the audition and they said, we want you to perform tonight. So we said, well, we're, we're really not ready. And they said, no, we want you to do this. So we, we called ourselves the schoolgirls because that's kind of the way we looked. So we did, we came in second place. It was, it was an amazing experience to be at the Apollo Theater. But, um, but you know, we just, um, it was just magical being there. It's just such a special place, and we didn't get booed, which was really important. And uh, so the experience was really, really well. And uh, yeah, so that was that was a fun time in my life. <laughs> After that, you joined a group, uh, The Awakening, uh, toured many countries, including one of my personal favorites, uh, Japan. I've been there, uh, spent some time there. I love the country. Uh, do you have any fun stories from that tour? Well, there was two things. Uh, Awakening was. Uh, a lot, a lot 
well, I went to I went to Japan with another group with oh. the Sons of the Supremes. It was a, a knockoff from the Supremes, and the Awakening. I traveled all over the the country. Didn't really go out outside of the country hardly at all. But um, that was a that was a really interesting time in my life where we did music from the. It was about seven of us together, and we had a big band, and uh, so it it was um. It was an experience to travel all over the world and meet so many different people, mainly country. Um, so that was really a good experience. And I did that for about three years on the road constantly for three years, maybe a vacation once a week. So, but that was really, it was really a wonderful experience for me. I, I'll never forget that. And that's where I really started to grow in my music. Uh, what does it entail? I mean, to be a, a traveling musician, I mean, obviously, you know, you're, where you live is basically either a tour bus or a hotel room. It, does that take a grind on you after a while, or is it basically like you just, you know, it's every day is the different challenge or anything like that? Well, yeah, and it depends on your age. You know, that, that plays a major role. You know, I was still really young then, and uh, with with that particular show that we would do, we would do the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, and part of the 70s. That, that was our act. And we would have to dance and sing and do all this. It took me, you know, learning all the things that I needed to do. Every time I got out of bed, I'd have to, I'd have to roll out of the bed because I was so sore, my muscles for like two months. So it was really grueling. But, um, but the experience taught me so much. And we traveled through all types of weather. We, we never really flew. We just drove. And a couple of times we had some really scary moments when people were falling asleep at the wheel and I'd have to be the one to wake people up and, <laughs> and things. It was, but it was a great experience. And then I went to Japan. I joined actually, um, I joined right after I left that group, I went to Japan and I was there for six months on my own doing a solo thing. And that was a wonderful experience. I went there with $25 in my pocket and a round trip ticket. And I was there for six months. And I did commercials and I did nightclubs and and uh, I really got to know Japan really well and that's a wonderful place. People are so kind and you know and, and generous to you and so that was a really big deal. They wanted me to come back and do a Supremes thing. Uh, they wanted to do it's called the Sounds of S and they wanted me to do like a like a what was it a Tony not Tony Lando and Dawn but it was kind of like that where you do a skits in the middle of your songs and, and that. So it was a great experience, but I was, I was really glad to get back home. I have to ask a question. You, you talk about the Supremes. Have you actually met Diana Ross? I've met her once, but when I joined the group, it was um, the girl who actually was singing with uh, Mary Wilson. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was the one that left the group and then decided to form the sounds of the Supreme. So it was a spinoff. Mm. Um, but but we traveled all over the world. We even we even performed in an igloo in the mountains, and I think it was um somewhere in the uh, not I can't remember exactly where it was Norway or something like that. But we actually performed in an igloo, and it was it was incredible. It was the experiences I had with this group for about ten years was amazing. So yeah. It was, have, it was fun. I have musicians that have been on the show before. I, I think you have a leg up on all of them about uh, concert venues now. So that's, <laughs> that's really great. I, yeah. So soon after that, you relocate to uh, Los Angeles. What inspired that move exactly? A guy 
Um, <laughs> when when I was um, before I went to Japan, and in fact I wouldn't have even had that trip, but um, a friend, uh, this guy that I was dating at the time, knew a. He was like a manager. He was like a boxing manager, so he had connections with Japan. And uh, they, I sent them a, a video and um, an audio of of me, and they said, "Let's take her. We'll we'll go." And you know, and I stayed there, like I said, for six months, and I learned so much about it. But that was that was actually when nine eleven happened. Mm. I I happened to be there um, when nine eleven happened, and uh, actually I was with the I was with the Supremes at that point. That's the second time I went to Japan. Yeah, that was a that was a really scary time with the Supreme. So, but yeah, it's all, it, there's so many pieces, you know, it's really hard to like put it all in order, but um, it was just so many places that I've been all over the world, um, pretty much in uh, just about every country you can think of. And uh, the experience of learning and knowing that we really are all alike, alike. And that's what human family is about. And by me experiencing that and traveling so much, you can really see that we really all want the same things. We want to be recognized, we want to be loved, and we want to be heard. And I think uh, those are the things that I took away from all of my travels. I think that's the three uh, words that actually the reason why I do this show. I think it's, uh, you know, loved uh, to be, and especially to be heard, because, you know, like everybody, everybody has a voice, everybody has an opinion, everybody should have a platform. But uh, yes. there you go. So I got to ask, mm -hmm. so as most aspiring actors and actresses do, you attended the Actors Workshop and found mm -hmm. some success in television. Do you have any fond memories of that period of your life? Um, during that time, it was a learning process, and uh, I just wanted to see if I can do it. Uh, what I take away from that is, you know, the camera doesn't lie. So if you're not really sure about something, it'll show up. And... Uh, and I, I just learned about how to be real when you're, when whatever you're doing, but especially on camera, it's just something about the camera that I don't know what it is, but it just, it just um, brings out the real person. And, and sometimes people feel really weird when they're looking at someone on TV and they're going, something's not comfortable or something's not right. Or when you look at you, when you look again at, at another person, you can see that wow, I really can relate to this person. It's just a genuine, you have to be genuine. If you're going to do TV, you really got to be genuine. I remember there was a very famous quote. I think it was by Meryl Streep. And it said that to act is to um, portray the inner truth of a human being. Mm. And I, that's always kind of stuck with me, that line. I don't know why exactly, but it has. That's really important to remember. Thank you. I'm glad you shared that. Uh, Sean. During the yeah. mid-90s, you were with several recording labels, such as Arista and, and after that, DreamWorks. Can you talk about some of your accomplishments during that period? Well, um, I was first signed to LaFace Records, which was a subsidiary of Arista distributed through BMG. LaFace Records at the time uh, was helmed by the legendary songwriter Babyface, who at the time had 100-plus top 10 hits. Uh, and he had worked with, uh, at the time, Boys to Men had uh, beat Elvis's record for I'll Make Love to You. And he heard my group as yet and wanted to sign us. So, uh, like I mentioned before, I was already um, being uh, courted by a few Ivy League uh, universities. But 
my heart was in music and I took an indefinite leave of absence because I was at University of the Arts for Jazz Voice um, at one point and they said, look, you're lucky if you can find a job when you come out of uh, college or you can take this opportunity and if it doesn't work out, just come back. So I moved to LA and our first record, self-titled album, was actually featured. Our first single was featured on the Nutty Professor soundtrack with Eddie Murphy. <laughs> and we got to, of course, we got to meet the cast and, and oh man. Oh, let's just say that it was never the same. Uh, we, we, we were, uh, we went number one billboard. Uh, at, then our second single was a song that I produced and arranged uh, with uh, Babyface and David Foster, the legendary David Foster, who's responsible for everyone from Aretha Franklin to Earth, Wind & Fire, Chicago, you name it. So when David Foster heard my arrangement, he said, you know what? I want to bring in Peter Cetera to be a guest artist on your record. And I was blown away. So that was uh, kind of my first uh, professional production. And it was a tough act to follow. And it got nominated for a Grammy in 1998. We toured 40 countries. And much like Van, when you're young, uh, the touring, it, it, you know, you can withstand more. But it got to a point where, you know, people would tell us, oh, there's all these girls waiting for you in the lobby. And I'm like, I'm tired. I don't, you know, <laughs> tell them I said thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to sleep. It's <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs> for some reason, I can't explain lately. I've been listening to a lot of Aretha Franklin. Um, I've never oh, really, yeah. I was never really a, a big fan until, I don't know, the last couple of weeks, for some reason, she popped up on, a, on something I was watching and I just started, you know, how you get stuck in the cycle of YouTube. Uh, the uh, rabbit hole <laughs> rabbit hole and that was just song after song after song and i was blown away i was never really aware of her you know and even which is weird because of such a music lover i am but yeah what a voice what what a yeah. powerful instrument she had i had a chance to meet her um, oh, wow. at a clive davis record release party clive, clive davis was throwing a party for alicia keys uh for her record release and all of the artists underneath Arista, which included Aretha Franklin, Whitney Houston, all the bad boy artists, uh, Sean Puffy Combs, and uh, let's see, Usher, TLC, Tony Braxton. So I see Aretha Franklin, and she's dancing with her shoes off and a slice of pizza in each hand. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, she was so real. Talk about what, what Van said about being real. What you see is what you get with Aretha. God rest her soul. Uh, there was no two sides to her. Uh, she is and was who you saw then and it's amazing that no matter when you're introduced to her you feel that connection right away you didn't grow up having a background necessarily uh being exposed to her but she still managed to uh pierce your uh your soul and that's that was one of her amazing gifts and i miss her already i saw a video of her performing at the kennedy center honors um and she brought uh, president obama to uh, a little bit of a tear there i was very very uh she shows you the the influence that she had. So yes, indeed. All right, Ben, uh, you take a turn in your career to focus on music, signing with Ian Mark and Casablanca. How was that experience recording your first album? Oh, it was really exciting. I mean, I was actually uh, working a regular job, and then at nighttime I would go to the studio. And uh, actually, I was working with I don't know if you're familiar with Haim Saban and Shuki Levy. They were my producers, and Haim Saban, he, uh, he, well, you can just look him up one day. He's he's a pretty powerful person. And Shuki Levy actually wrote a lot of theme songs like for Dallas and Falcon Crest. And Inspector Gadget. Yeah. And he, and he, and he also, um, 
he also created uh, the Power Rangers, and so he they were my producers, and that was that was a really fun time and working with Casablanca, and I met um, Donna Summer and so many other people there, and and uh, it was just a wonderful time. And when my album was ready to be released, I was getting ready to go on the Merv Griffin show in Vegas, and everything stopped. The album was done. Everything was in place. And uh, Poly- Polygram, I think it was Polygram, that bought out Casablanca at that time. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't pick up any new artists. And that's where it stopped, right there. And I had an opportunity to uh, go to Europe, um, some European countries. And um, they wanted me to perform there and to, to do albums there. But my manager at the time was, he wasn't in the right frame of mind, and he really messed up that deal. So that just just went away. Hmm. But I had the experience, I and I enjoyed it, and those are the things that I really remember. I later did some music with uh, with um, Donna Summer, and uh, it was the Rock and Roll New Year's Eve, and so I did background uh, background vocals with her. Did Clark and, uh, Rock New Year's Eve? Yeah. Ah. Yeah, it was great. It was, I think, around 2006. So yeah, I did. I was doing some background vocals with her, which was amazing. She's just to be with her on stage is, it's like, it's you can't even imagine how powerful that was and how wonderful it was. And she's so kind. She was so kind. That's one of the questions I was going to ask next because obviously, like I said, you both have dropped some pretty big names. There is when you meet these other artists, and these are. I mean, we're talking these are Rock and Roll Hall of Fame names, mm-hmm. artists. Are they supportive of you? Are they, do they, do they give you words of inspiration or is it just kind of like, well, good luck to you and, you know, what have you? That's a, that's a good question. Um, the only thing that uh, Donna said to me was, do you think I should wear my dress up higher up here or what? And, you know, those kind of things. She never really talked to me about too much, but she was always really kind. And I've, I've met her before briefly, but she was always so kind and just real. You know, she just, she, I'm just really, I still really miss her to this day. She was just a real person. She was not trying to be anything that she wasn't. She was just herself. And you can feel that about her, the genuine, you know, qualities that she had. So it was, it was a pleasure and an honor. I also did the same thing with Nancy Wilson. You know, we worked with her too for a little while. That was another experience that was really good. Um, I don't have anything negative to say about anyone that I've worked with uh, on a professional level. They were kind, they were genuine, they they were sincere, and I'm glad I had that kind of experience. I love hearing that. I I absolutely do. That warms my heart. All right, so that brings (laughs) us next to The Platters. Let's uh, let's talk about that one. Oof. Well, the Platters, um, <laughs> I joined the group. We called ourselves Platinum because we really couldn't use the name Platters anymore. And one of the original people that were involved with the Platters, I sang with. And we just traveled like to Mexico. We traveled everywhere and we shared the stage with um, a lot of different artists at that time. Um, Little Anthony and the, Imper- and the Imperials, we sang with them. And uh, that was really fun. And I got to talk to them about, it's nice because you get a chance to spend a one-on-one with them. And I said, you know, you guys still sound so amazing. What is it that makes you, you know, go the way you go? And they said, practice, practice, practice. Mm. So I said, okay, 
That's what I need to do. Because they were, I mean, so strong. They, they, they sound exactly the same as they did maybe 30 years ago. So just having those, those meetings with people and getting information, I was always wanting to ask questions about how this and how that, because, you know, inside information to me is everything. And you can take that with you and that helps you grow. So that was important to me. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. right. So around this point, you and Sean's paths cross, and you become the founder and CEO of Smooch Music. And Sean, I believe you are the operating officer. Am I correct? Yes, yes. What, what wound up happening, uh, thanks to uh, Troy Hinton, Van's son, um, he heard a project I was working on, which originally was uh, – it was inspired by Dr. Angelo's work and I recorded a few songs and he, he says, you need to meet my mom and her husband. And I think they would really be interested in this project. And I thought, oh, okay, maybe they want to invest in it because there's a lot of legal work that has to go in there, you know, blah, blah, blah. And next thing you know, you know, they offered me a job like, Hey, can, we want to build a company and you're just the guy to help us. Um, you know, we want you to be on, on the team. So, I, instead of them investing in just the project, I felt like they were investing in me and it was so touching. We, we, we just hit it off right away because, you know, as you can tell, Dan and I have very similar uh, walks of life that happened to converge. And there was some greater force at work than just our egos uh, bringing this project together. Um, we're already both big fans of Dr. Angelo, but um, when I was introduced to Van and Smooch Music became a reality, it was the difference between just having a great idea and seeing it come to fruition and actually sitting in the living room with Dr. Angelo uh, working on the record together. That brings me to my next question is um, how did the introduction to uh, the legendary Dr. Angelo happen? <laughs> this is going to be really funny. Okay, Sean, you have to take that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'd worked on some music. And this is the short version. I know you said we had like four hours, but, you know, the project took seven years to get <laughs> to the end point. So I don't want to, <laughs> but make a long story short. So Van's son introduces me to Van and all of the music that I'd recorded up to that point was done with musicians who were not paid. They did it because, uh, you know, they loved the concept and I was basically singing and whoever wanted to put guitars behind it or put music behind it. I said, look, let's just all get together. Whoever's a fan of Dr. Angelo, I can't promise anything, but we're just going to do it. So I was surprised how many people, you know, over 30 musicians decided just to jam with me and this little concept. But then, uh, lo and behold, I was uh, hired to perform at a blues, uh, a blues festival in Banyaya in Aqua Pendente, which is out in 40 kilometers north of Rome. So I'm in Italy at this little blues festival, and the keyboard player's mom invites me to her house. So I go to the house, and I on the wall, I see this picture uh, of Margaret Courtney Clark and Dr. Angelo. And Margaret Courtney Clark is um, my keyboard player's mom. And when I say my keyboard player, right, this guy, he, he was uh, Pink's music director, Christina Aguilera's music director, Natalie Cole's music director, Rick James' music director, Bobby Brown's music director, you name it. This guy's like, you know, one of the most hired session players in Los Angeles. And his dad was the whistler from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, you know. Oh, yeah. So he, he worked with Emil Morricone. He's the actual whistle on all of those 
famous movies, The Fistful of Dollars, um, and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. So I said, oh, you have a picture with Dr. Maya Angelou. I've always wanted to work with her. And she says, oh, I, I didn't just take the picture. I wrote four books with Dr. Angelou. And I stopped in my tracks and I said, you know, I had this idea of, of wanting to like make her poetry into music. And she looks at me and says, do it. Mm -hmm. And the way she said it, I had chills on the back of my neck. I couldn't believe it. I'm, I, 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 now I had to do it because I, I just felt like without saying, without saying it, she was already telling me that if it got done, that she could take it to Maya. And I asked her son later, I said, what does it mean? What does she mean when she said, do it? He says, you better do it. <laughs> you better do it. So I came back to, this has been 2007. I came back to Los Angeles and just kept recording, recording, recording. And Smooch said, okay, well, you know, we're going to make sure all the musicians are paid at union scale, whether or not they're in your union, because a lot of folks were just, you know, first time or, and a lot of established artists, you know, they were doing it for free, but unless you pay people, they can always come back and say, Oh, you never paid me. Right. So Smooch handled everything perfectly. And they said, you know what, we're going to sit down and do whatever it, it takes. And, you know, with, without getting too much into the nuts and bolts, let's just say that, you know, over a million was spent before anything, any records came out and we recorded so much music and Dr. Angelo heard it because of that one friend of the keyboard player, well, the mother of the keyboard player gave it to Vicki Hughes. And Vicki Hughes uh, is part of Dr. Angelo's family. Vicki Hughes took it to a Thanksgiving party and played it during the village Thanksgiving party before we had ever even met her. They loved it. And we were not invited. When I say we weren't invited, this is where the story gets fun. So what happened was uh, Margaret, Courtney Clark says to me, there's a party at Mar-a-Lago. Yes, Trump's Mar-a-Lago. And um, you're not invited, but if you, here's the dress code. And if you happen to show up, I don't know you, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I said, I, so I asked her son again, I said, what does she mean when she says, she's giving me all the information, but telling me, should I not go? He says, you better go. So Smooch is like, okay, we're getting you on the plane. We're booking you a room at Mar-a-Lago. You're going to go and meet with Dr. Angelo. We're going to crash the party. So I get in line thinking, oh my goodness, <laughs> they're going to ask for my name. And, uh, you know, I got my little, you know, outfit on, but, oh man, if I, oh man, I could go to jail right now. Right. <laughs> and I had a dream the night before you know, I couldn't really sleep, but I had a dream that Dr. Angelo was wearing this red dress like she was wearing a long flowing red dress. So I get to the Mar-a-Lago and I'm walking in the hallway and I'm thinking she's going to be like in the VIP in the back somewhere. But no, Dr. Angelo is sitting in the front greeting everyone wearing a red dress. She's in the front, like checking people in. Like this is my party and I want to look everyone in the eye and welcome you personally to my 80th birthday party. Man, I, I had to fight back the tears, I tell you. And I have the picture of that too. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Her grandson took the picture. And I said, Dr. Angelo, I'm the gentleman who's been making that music uh, with you. She said, I know who you are. Enjoy the party. Welcome. <laughs> <And I'm> like, <laughs> Classic. Oh, man. I'll tell you. Hey there, planet Earth. We are going to go ahead and take a quick break, give you a chance to, you know, refresh that drink or, you know, go to the bathroom. And then during that time, we will be spotlighting two great friends of the show, and a plug for our sponsor. Don't worry, we'll be right back in a few minutes. 
Hello there, Gigawater gang. I'm Kina, the host of the boozy and delightfully foul mouth comedy podcast, Historical AF. I'm a nerdy public historian that is joined by a special guest each week to deliver funny, weird, spooky, and morbid historical nuggets you never knew you needed in your ear holes. Past topics have included the magical manhood of Russia's mad monk Rasputin, my hot take that aliens did not build the pyramids, serial killers that both my parents happened to meet as children. Listen, I know what you're thinking, Kina, how do you even exist right now? Also, who was it? All right, I'll tell you. Spoiler alert, it was Sean Wayne Gacy and Mark Allen Smith. Anywho, we can't forget the spooky. I've covered topics ranging from the ghosts of Anne Boleyn to the night marchers in Hawaii. Don't look at them, guys. If you do, you have to strip naked and you have to lay on the dirt. Dim's the rules. You can listen and subscribe to Historical AF wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Historical AF Pod. And finally, you can check out the website for links to listen, sources, because citing is sexy, photos, and more at historicalafpodcast.com. Okay, bye! Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. And be sure to add the Derek Duvall Show in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of your application. Hi, guys. I'm John. And I'm Frank. And we're the hosts of a general discussion comedy show out of Brooklyn, New York called The Basement Surge. Where every Monday we drop new episodes about all the different stuff we like, such as movies, video games, being a dad, basically anything that pops in our heads. The Basement Surge is available to listen to on every podcast platform there is. Including Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Basement Surge. Check out our official website at www.thebasementsurge.com for more info. Of upcoming episodes and all the magic that we come up with. All right? And that's it. Anything else? Tune the in. Welcome back, planet Earth. See, aren't you glad you know more about some great shows out there? Well, let's get right back into our discussion with our immensely talented guests, Van Jewel Hinton. And Sean Rivera. So that brings us, obviously, to the latest project, uh, the video, Still I Rise. Can you tell us where the inspiration for this particular piece come from? And, and tell us about the video. Well, Sean, yeah, you should, because you were definitely um, the inspiration for how that came to be. <laughs> the original Still I Rise, uh, rewinding back to 2007, um, when I, I had a, a stack of poetry uh, that I had printed out of Maya Angelou's music. And everyone knows Still I Rise. It's required reading, and a lot of people perform it in America anyway, as a part of poetry competitions. And uh, I remember uh, Simone Sello and Alex Allison Joni, who was that famous keyboard player I was telling you about. Um, I sat with them and I was singing a melody to the poetry. I would just take a page and read it. And it was the, the second song. Um, being created for this album. And then I recorded, uh, Jimmy Taylor wound up playing guitar with uh, Simone Cello and all these great musicians, but they basically followed the melody that I put down and it became like this thing that uh, 
it, it's like a snowball that kept growing. And I wanted to keep uh, capture the soulfulness of, of the old blues, which Maya was a huge fan of the old blues, um, which a lot of us are. And that sort of uh, that stomp, that chant, that chain dragging, soulful, heartfelt, gospel inspired type of feel. Even though the, the song itself and the lyrics to the poem are not necessarily gospel, the soulfulness is there. So I did the demo version first, and then that was the, uh, sent to uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina for that Thanksgiving party. And after Maya uh, had lo- loved it, and we got emails back saying, oh, she was so tickled with the, with the words they used. She was so tickled by the, the idea of her voice being used in that way. I could not let such a great opportunity pass without including my longtime band as yet. So I went back to the guys and said, hey, I got this song on this project, you know, because we had pretty much disbanded at the time. We weren't really, uh, you know, recording anything. But I basically brought the band back together and said, hey, if there's ever an excuse for us to bury the hatchet and record something. And once again, Smooch said, okay, whatever it's going to take, we'll pay the guys to make sure, you know, this thing gets done. And I basically swapped out my demo vocals for the much better uh, lead vocals of the rest of the group, you know, singing their hearts out. And it's the last song we recorded together with the original members. And it turns out that um, it was a perfect fit. And with the video, um, thanks to Van, Van had suggested um, during one of our conference calls, like we do like a weekly conference call with a team of people to make sure that this thing is going right and that we're handling all the aspects of the project. And Van had said, you know, we really need to do something special for Still I Rise uh, that ties it in with what's going on now. And she inspired me to go back into the archives and revisit the song and without even thinking about it i knew that smooch could make it happen i said you know what i'm going to go through all of the the video footage um from the civil rights struggle um basically what 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 most people are not aware of well i'll say many people many folks are not aware that the george floyd incident is not even the icing on the cake it's a long it's only one in a long string of incidents so I went back to the one of the first quote unquote viral incidents, which was the murder of Emmett Till, mm-hmm. who was a young boy who was accused of uh, flirting with a white girl, you know, and he was brutally murdered. And his mother requested that the the images of his battered body be shared with the world. It took her so much courage to do that because she knew that the outrage would be so great that it would spark change. And that is the same thing that happened with George Floyd, where when you see it, there's no way that you can't be outraged. So when I played Dr. Angelo's poetry and the music and uh, juxtaposed it with that, the, the imagery from all of the different countries, uh, the Maori to the Netherlands to uh you know, George Floyd and beyond, it all just made sense. It just, it came together in such a way that we knew that we had something powerful. I'm going to recircle around a little bit because this next question ties right into this, uh, what you were just discussing, and then we'll go back to Still I Rise. Uh, with the rise in racial tensions, obviously in the United States and now all over the world, with African-Americans calling for an end to racism, police violence, how do you as an artist find a way to respectfully channel that energy into music? Well, part of it is, you know, knowing that we're all fighting some kind of a battle. 
nothing is perfect in this world, especially in this country. And we just have to, as far as I'm concerned, we have to find a way to cooperate. And every now and then when something happens like 9-11, everyone came together because it was an outside thing. But we have our own internal, you know, problems here. And I think over time, it's getting better and better because things are becoming more and more um, apparent. And uh, and there's a lot of people that just don't want to stand for it anymore. I mean, it's it's not fair. There's so many mixed people out there now, even if you look at commercials. You know, there's, there's signs that people are really trying to come together. And there's always going to be those, I think, that... Uh, grew up a certain way, and it's it's in their family. It's generational, and that's where it's really deeply rooted. So, but it's coming. It's getting better and better. And I have to always believe that, because at the end, if something was going to be an outside influence to this country, I I see black and white, brown, everyone coming together because it's something that's going to be attacking all of us. But I just think people should be allowed to be free to be whoever they are. And I just I just will never understand it since I grew up in a you know pretty much a middle class white neighborhood. I didn't see black or white. I didn't see color. You know, and I really wish people would look inside of people instead of you know focusing so much on the outside. I think you know, that's, that's, one the, that's one of the most interesting things about me about where I come from in Great Britain. Uh, very small village. I never met uh, a black person until I came to America. Simple, mm. It's as simple. Wow. When I immigrated to the United States, uh, there was one. There was one black boy in my class, and it wow. was. It was like you know, you see it on TV, and, you, and then finally see an African American in in person. And it was thankfully he took mercy of me because I had the weirdest questions because I was a young boy. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> can I touch your hair? No, okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I, and um, him and I, we, we kept in contact all the way till um, I think till I was in my twenties, and then we lost contact with each other when I went to the military. But uh, yeah, he was. Uh, it was it was real education, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I was invited to his house, and I, I'm you know, I sat down and had dinner with his family. It's, you know, it's not good to judge anybody. I mean, nobody's perfect, and and we were born this way. Mm -hmm. It's not that you know we chose it. So I just think that people need to be in cooperation and just allow people to be who they are that but there's just so much you know you gotta you gotta get into you know the reality of back in those days there was yes obviously there was definitely um the civil war and everything and uh but we've come so far but some people just want to still hold on to that yeah. and i think it just makes people ill because if you hate people and, and you have to deal with them all the time anyway in this life on this planet, you know, just find a way to cooperate. You know, there's things, I mean, we all have the same blood in us. That doesn't change. So just because you're different on the outside, I can never understand that. I could never grasp that. We're all the same on the inside. Just because our skin tone is different, why should that really be so different? than? I mean, nobody's perfect. Look at when Christopher Columbus came over and certain things that happened that they did to the to the Indians, as far as I'm concerned. And once they learned everything about, you know, how to live there and the Indians would show them these things. What did they do to them? You know, what did they do to the Indians? So I go all the way back to that. So nobody is any no better than anybody else. No race is any better than any, any other race. It's just that's what I always say. Hatred is a learned trait. 
Yes. Yes, well said. Uh, I am living proof that we can all coexist because being Puerto Rican, I share bloodlines with African slaves, with indigenous people and conquistadors. And here I am walking around as a, as a result. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's a constant uh, struggle. I think it's more about self-acceptance and people who are, are not in love with themselves, who feel the need to scapegoat other people or somehow um, elevate themselves at the expense of others. They're always looking for some sort of excuse, you know, and I, I, I'll take a page out of Van's book and, and keep it positive. Um, sometimes I do understand, although I disagree with the motivations behind mm-hmm. um, racism, because it's born of ignorance. Like mm-hmm. not everybody is like Derek, where they're willing to engage with people outside of their uh, familiar comfort zone and say, you know what, I want to get to know uh, people that aren't necessarily a part of my cultural sphere. Mm-hmm. A lot of people just retreat to their little echo chamber and stay inside because they, they've been, they believe what the media has told them or they just feel safer and they don't want to make the mistakes of asking the stupid questions. But it takes a lot of courage to ask great questions. Any, you know, they say there's no such thing as a stupid question, mm-hmm. only stupid answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. But I did, if I can add to that, sure. growing up, I grew up as a citizen predominantly white neighborhood and uh, middle class. And in my school, I think there were maybe three black people there. And I'm like half, I'm like, you know, half European. And my, my other side is, um, is black. So, and I didn't know really who I was growing up because I looked, people said, who are you? What are you? You know, they'd always ask me that all the time. And my brother, who's my half brother, he's very, very dark. And they're going, that's not your brother. And I said, yes, it is. And so that was a, a that was something that went on all my life. But they would always ask me, who are you? What are you? And I said, I'm a human being. That was the only answer mm-hmm. I could ever come up with, you know. Uh, but um, so I never, I never could judge anybody. But people really had a problem with the way I looked, you know. You know what, that's Black Steve, people, if, if I might interject. Have yes. you ever been forced to choose sides? Because I know what that feels like. People would say, what yes. do you mix with? Because they knew I had yeah. black in my blood, but they're like, well, if your last name's Rivera, they think Spanish, but Spanish is a language, not a culture, right? Yeah. And the thing is, you, there's that thing where they want you to choose sides. We're like, you're never good enough for anybody because you're right. not black enough and you're not white. I know that feeling. That, yeah. I guess this is why we relate to each other so well. Yeah, um, that's another see. reason. But yeah, yeah. It, it's... it's um, and I just tell people, you know, I'm just a human being. That's all I can ever say to anybody, you know, and I don't care. I got to the point where I just didn't care what people thought about me, but I, I just loved everybody. I don't care what color you are or what you do or anything. It's not about that. It's about who you really are inside, you know, what kind of person are you really inside? I don't care how much money you have. I don't care where you live, whatever. That's all that matters to me. And that's the only kind of relationship that I like to have with people that are genuine and not judgmental because we don't have the right to judge anybody. So I'm going to take it back real quick to the single. Uh, one interesting note of, is that 50% of all the proceeds from the single are going to charity with the Dr. Myangelo Foundation. Yes. Uh, can you tell us about that decision? That was a, that's a very noble of you. It wasn't really a, a hard decision. It was pretty much an automatic thing. We knew what she was doing and uh, prior to us really working with her, and we admired her and what what she's, you know, she's all about education and, and anything to, to 
you know, bring people up to a higher level. And so that was in in agreement with us. We felt the same way. And so that wasn't really a hard decision. And we decided we want to be a part of that. And we want to, you know, put, put whatever we can into it to make it grow. And so that was a simple, that was a simple thing to do. Do you guys have any interest in uh, future collaborations? Any artists come to mind? Well, yeah. I have my eye on something. I don't. I don't even know. I haven't even spoke to you, Sean, about this. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking about the young, uh, the young uh, Miss Gorman. I'll call her the young new poet. We sort of talked about it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I I, I have some thoughts about her. Yes. Yeah. So. That's something if there I'm was anyone who didn't carry the torch on, yes, yes, ma'am, yes, and yes. Yes. Amanda Gorman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I'm going to be reaching out to her, or someone's going to reach out for me on my behalf, and uh, just talk with her. Because I, I want her to, to know Dr. Angelou and know who she really was, and that might give her more inspiration, and though she, I don't think she needs much, but just so she can know that she's following in great footsteps. In, in 2021, the pandemic now seems as though there could be a light at the end of the tunnel. This all could be coming to an end soon. Do you guys have future plans post-COVID? Is there a tour or anything like that? Uh, I do. Um, look, I'm in a group. And they, I, they, I'm trying to stay away from groups, but they keep calling me back. But no, I actually met, I met some gentlemen from my hometown who are like family to me. Um, they have been in the legacy of the Philly soul R&B sound. And we're almost finished our first record. We have a few singles out. The name of the group is VM, AKA Viva Mas. Viva Mas is currently available on all streaming platforms. And as soon as they let down the restrictions, we're going on tour together. Nice. That, that is gonna be fabulous. No, my my thought is going to be um, I'm writing my book, my autobiography about my life, and the last chapters right now is about Dr. Angelou. It's been years since I've been writing this book, uh, and uh, because there's always something new that's that's being added. Um, I wrote this book because because of my upbringing in the foster care, foster care, and uh, I went through a lot of uh, molestation. I was molested on a regular basis, and uh, it it really changed me. But music was always my saving grace. And any time I was actually singing in my brother's bedroom, uh, my foster father would come in. And this went on for years. So I I want to write this. I'm writing this book because I I want people to know that you don't have to be a victim. You have to be a victor. Okay. And you can't allow something or someone to change who you really are. We all have our own paths. So I, I don't want people to to lose who they really are and just feel like they're, they're, they don't have any value. And so this wow. is what this book is about. And my, my real mother, she was actually um, wanted by the FBI in three different states. And she had 11 children. And I only knew about my, my three brothers and myself. And uh, I didn't know about my my other family until 1998. And so um, there's so much that I want to share in this book about how not to to lose yourself, not to abandon yourself, even though you were abandoned um, by your parents. So it's about 
growth. And and by meeting Dr. Angelou, it it gave me even more to write about. And so and, and I was there depth. when she actually told you to put the book out. My Angelou it told yeah. you she endorsed you right then and there when you told her yep. about it. I remember. Yes. And the first question I asked her, <clears throat> I had pen and pen in my in my hand and paper ready to for her response. And I said, you know, I'm writing my autobiography and, you know, can you give me some, you know, ideas as to how to go about, you know, getting this done? And I'm really waiting for these pearls, you know, these words of wisdom. And she looked at me and she said, it's damn hard. (laughs) And that's all she said. (laughs) And my mouth was open. I said, what? (laughs) She goes, yep, it's damn hard. And that's uh, it's a shame she's not alive. She could have written that forward for you or something. I know, I know, <laughs> but it's okay. You know, it's going to get to where it needs to go. Uh, I'm not we may like... be able to include her audio, um, the audio of her endorsement. Maybe we'll put it into the audio book forward. We'll oh, see. Wow. Okay, okay. All right. You'll help me with that, I'm sure. Thank you. I got you. <laughs> Teamwork makes the dream work. All right. I end my interviews with the final question, and it's become one of my favorite parts of the shows as the answers that are given are so genuine and so unique. And this goes for both of you. So I'm going to let you both answer uh, one after the other. If the entire population of the planet was listening to this broadcast, what is the one thing you would like to say to the entire planet? I'll go start with uh, Van. That we are more alike, my friend, than we are unalike which is Dr. Angela's songs. And we're all in this together. I mean, you know, on this planet. So it's about cooperation and changing the vibration. We can change the vibration of this planet by just, you know, looking at people um, from the inside out. That's really what I want to take away. Sean. Wow. You took my answer, man. But (laughs) (laughs) in the words of Dr. Angelo, you may forget what someone said or what they did, but you'll never forget how they made you feel. So be a rainbow in someone's cloud because you never know what storm they're going through. Love is the answer. Yep. That's beautiful. Amen to that. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. Please let my audience know how best to find you both online. Yes, cagebirdsongs.com, Smooch Music Inc., and also Smooch Inc. for the fashion line and the merchandise, Facebook and Instagram, Cagebird Songs. Uh, Not to mention, if you care about me specifically, Sean Kurt Rivera on Instagram or Sean Rivera on Facebook, and Spotify, and what's they say, Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, Cagebird mm-hmm. Songs. Yep. In YouTube, YouTube. like and subscribe, Cagebird Songs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Van, Sean, thank you so much for coming on my show. This has been very interesting and a fun time. And I, I, speaking for me and all my all my followers, I wish you both the best in the future. Trust me, you you two are very special, very unique people. Well, thank, thank you, you for saying that. And we love you, too. Oh. And I, I love speaking with you because you're so real. And I can feel that strongly. And you are you are trying to educate people in ways of being better and more aware. And I appreciate you. Oh, yes. And the cadence of your speech is impeccable. Oh. Yes. 
That would be Dr. <laughs> Angelo speaking. <laughs> Thank you. I might, in fact, actually, when I put that on my website, I might put that as a prose passage of my own. So, anybody say go? <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. And uh, hopefully down the road, um, any future projects uh, come on back on the show. Well, we yeah. have them coming up. So we look forward to talking with you again. All right. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. And just like that, we come to the end of episode 15 of the Derek Duvall Show. I want to thank Vangel Hinton and Sean Rivera for their amazing conversation we had. Trust me, I hope we get to hear from them again very soon. They've got some great, great things going on. Things are going great at the production studios. And I tell you, we have interviewed some absolutely incredible individuals in the last few weeks that we cannot wait to share with you. Believe me, these are amazing interviews. Hey, Derek, I've had some friends ask, how might they be able to help support The Derek Duvall Show? It's funny you say that, Mrs. Duvall. I believe they can go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, and click at the very bottom of the page the link that says, Buy Me a Coffee. The listener's support goes far to bringing quality entertainment day in and day out. Their support is greatly, greatly appreciated. Well, on behalf of the entire team here at The Derek Duvall Show, we want to say, be safe, be kind, and be well. Oh yeah, get the vaccine. Remember folks, don't engage in Mortal Kombat without consulting a professional first, but always be ready to test your might. Nostar, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show. And we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for the latest news on downloads and to explore past episodes. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.